You're listening to Middle East Analysis, a podcast series taking a close look at the Middle East North Africa region. It can't have escaped your attention that it is 2020, which, believe it or not, is practically a decade of myself and the fine man sitting opposite me, Dr. Harry Hagopian, chatting away about all things related to the Middle East North Africa region. Harry, I'm delighted to have you here. How do you feel in light of rabbiting on about the Middle East North Africa for a decade? Well, you know what? First of all, a happy new year to everybody who listens to this podcast, James. It's a pleasure to be here again and at the start of a new year and a new decade. And there are two thoughts that come to mind to answer your question. The first one is that it's been great discussing, particularly with you, because you're one of those presenters who gives and takes, who doesn't just sit there and blank out while I rabbit on on my own. But the second thing is also a feeling of, okay, we do all this analysis, but the Middle East, North Africa, and the Gulf regions are so unpredictable that no matter how cleverly we define or analyze a situation at any given moment, you can be sure that a few weeks later things will have changed and completely moved in a different direction. So it it makes me wonder sometimes, what's the point of us expending so much energy? But then on the other hand, I think what we're doing, if not necessarily providing a broader vision, is establishing the foundation upon which people could create and base their own opinions because at the end of the day that's what it is people should have their own opinions and we only nudge them in one direction or another on the basis of our experiences very well said but you know i thought you were going to take exception to the the use of rabbiting on oh no no i don't mind i like rabbits In our garden, when I was a wee kid in shorts, uh, in my garden, my mum used to keep rabbits, and I used to go and sit in front of the rabbits mesmerized and just watch them. And of course, as you well know, the number of rabbits increased exponentially every season. And eventually, my mother said, look, we're not going to spend half our time and one third of our garden breeding uh, rabbits. So we left rabbits and we went to chicken instead. Do you know, the problem I've got here is that our poor listeners are probably now visualising you in shorts. <laughs> enjoy, listeners, enjoy. Um, right, on to the serious business. Now, you always say this quite rightly as well, that it's very hard to do news in such a fast-moving environment and the fact that we get together far less than I would like for us to do so. But obviously we have had the um, drone death of Soleimani in, in uh, Iran, of course, and then fears of World War Three, which I thought was a strong phrase for, for people to be bringing up. And that said, though, it seems to be a de-escalation. We've had the, the downing of the, the passenger plane as well, um, that eventually Iran explained was, in their words, a sort of an accidental downing of that plane. Are we in the middle of a de-escalation? It points to it. But is this temporary? Is this a little bit of cat and mouse? What is your current take on the situation of Iran, US and wider relations. Well, um, James, let me start off because we started off on a jovial note. I'm going to continue on a jovial note by saying that I caught a mistake you did just now. Go on. And I'm sure that some of our listeners might have caught it as well. Not if I General Qasem Soleimani. (laughs) Yes, that's why you have control of the instruments. Uh, General Qasem Soleimani was not assassinated in Iran. He was assassinated in Iraq. Yes, good point. 
And secondly, you said accidental. The word that is being used by the uh, Iranian foreign ministry is unintentional. And I think there is a huge difference for me as a lawyer between unintentional and accidental. Listen, people started talking about World War III. That's inevitable. We have social media now that inflates serious news tenfold anyway. And people have their jollies by sort of imagining all sort of apocalyptic uh, happenings in the world. I never thought that it was going to be that, but I thought that it was serious and it could go in either direction. It could either have escalated or de-escalated. And in a sense, I think, although both the United States and Iran have erratic rulers and politicians, and you never can tell which way they're going to go because they're both locked into this confrontation, this maelstrom that is unpredictable, yet both of them also know that it is not in their interests to escalate this into a much bigger war. I don't think President Trump wants a war, and I don't think uh, President Rouhani and Iran want a war either, and that is for entirely different reasons. If there were a war, the victor would inevitably be, if there is such a victor in wars, the United States. But they both would be losers because uh, Donald Trump would have seriously stymied his chances of becoming president again at the end of this year when elections take place, and the Iranians would sustain considerable uh, loss uh, and damage not only to their pride, but also to their country, which is, after all, a 7,000-year civilization. So both didn't want that escalation. The question is, they'd climbed up this tall tree. How do they come down from the tree? And fortunately, they managed to sort of get round it by this uh, volley of 16 ballistic missiles which were targeted so well that they caused neither casualty nor damage, but that Iran could claim was, here it was, a regional power challenging a superpower. And the Americans were happy. They wouldn't react because there were no casualties. There were no deaths in American uh, soldiers. And so the two military bases, Ain al-Assad in the Al-Anbar region, which is west of Iraq, and the one ballistic missile that was launched at a huge uh, military camp in Erbil in Iraqi Kurdistan pretty much uh, caused no damage. And then you could see the reaction of the Iranians who went out in the streets, uh, sort of saying this is unacceptable that you assassinated, you killed uh, Qasem Soleimani, not necessarily because everybody loved Qasem Soleimani, but also because he was an Iranian who was basically the equivalent of what I would call Uh, the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff. That is a major uh, incident. Uh, But all that, of course, then shuddered. Why did it shudder? Because of this unintentional downing of the Ukrainian plane. So I held my breath for another minute or two saying, oh, is this going to reverse the de-escalation again? But fortunately enough, not, and uh, President Trump ramped up the economic sanctions. He's a businessman. He doesn't want war. He's afraid of war. He doesn't believe in war. He thinks you can achieve more through economic sanctions than you can through military strikes. So he ramped up the economic sanctions. Uh, Iran doubled down, and now we are where we are, which is a situation, I think, of Let's wait and see. And my own thoughts on this, and we started by saying that we talk and then two weeks later, facts prove us wrong. But I think this could, if given 
its leeway go until November when the U.S. presidential elections take place. And if President Donald J. Trump is re-elected, then I think Iran would have to really seriously consider what it's going to do. Or before that, what is going to happen? How are we going to tinker the non-nuclear deal, what's known as the JCPOA? And would that still be standing come November 2020? Now, talking about those um, strikes near, those very well-targeted strikes, that's one thing. And I accept that is a, a, a visual sign of a response. Obvious, obvious where it's come from, bit of muscle flexing. I find it very unsatisfactory, obviously, the downing of a, a passenger plane, unintentionally or, or otherwise. I mean, that's different, isn't it? It is different in a sense because that was the... Well, on the one hand, it was criminal and on the other, it was stupid. And when you put criminal and stupid together, you always end up with a disaster. And that disaster was, first of all, a PR disaster for Iran because all the goodwill and all the credit that it had accrued as a result of the assassination of its general, Qasem Soleimani, who incidentally, everybody's talking about him being number two, him being the supremo in the country. Not really. The man was an executor, not necessarily a planner. Iran has other people as well that it could rely on. But all that credit that Iran had accrued disappeared, vanished with this stupid uh, action by whoever it was in the IRGC, in the uh, popular mobilization militias that downed the plane. And of course, Uh, admitting it, acknowledging it. Every uh, Iranian Iranian politician has acknowledged it from president to foreign minister to everybody else. But acknowledgement is not enough. I mean, there were Canadians, there were Brits, there were Germans, there were other people in there, not only Iranians, and all of them, every single one of them, I don't give a toss about their identity, is a hapless victim, a loss, a painful loss. And therefore, Iran has to come clean, has to say how this is done, to find out from the black box exactly what happened. And then comes the time, not only of the uh, acknowledgement and the apology, but also the compensation and whatever else comes after that. And in all honesty, I think the response has been fairly restrained off the back of something as grave as that. But don't you think, though, that these are different times? Even 10, 15 years ago, you wouldn't be seeing on social media footage from a phone of something striking an object in the air, for instance, enough to create some doubt. You would not be seeing missile heads in trenches. You know, those things wouldn't have happened 10 or 15 years ago. But now you can't spin a different narrative, can you? That's absolutely true. And that's one of the reasons why the Iranians at the beginning denied all knowledge of what happened to the aircraft. And then after that, they had to accept it. But, you know, uh, social media wasn't there 15 years ago. James, you and I are old enough to remember the days when we didn't have social media. And Social media is good because you can't hide things, but social media is bad in that it can sensationalize things and it can promote fake news as well. So it really depends how responsibly or irresponsibly you use uh, social media. But let me tell you, I mean, there have been other uh, cases. There have been that Malaysian airline. There has been the one that was shot down by the Americans a number of years ago. So this is not the first time it's happened. It's most unfortunate. The stupidest thing that the Iranians did is that they didn't immediately acknowledge it and they try to hide it, which makes people and people who know Iran far better than I, who say that that is the whole uh, ethos of the regime to lie their way and deny their way out of a difficult corner. 
that needn't have happened because one thing I'm sure is that, well, as sure as I can be, I suppose, is that it was unintentional and it was not intentional. So I hope that this phase of de-escalation, as you call it, the sort of calming a little bit of the tensions would last. And eventually, you know what? No matter what happens, at the end, the Iranians and the Americans have to sit down and talk because there is no other way out of it. Europe and the EU are don't have the weight for it. The Arab regional powers, the Gulf, suddenly went all silent because they were afraid as to what could happen. The only person who really had a high profile in this was the Emir of Qatar, who went to Iran in order to understand what's happening. And his advantage over other GCC rulers is that he's got uh, very close relations with the Americans and very good ties with Iran. So he could be a very good mediator or facilitator. But at the end of the day, what needs to be done is for the Americans and the Iranians to stop fussing about and sit down and talk and find a way out of this scenario in which they've locked themselves, because otherwise the uncertainty is not going to help anything in the long term as it might be in the short term. Your point about Soleimani, you know, I read that he was the de facto number two, number three, whichever, however you want to put it. It's very interesting what you said about that, because I got the feeling that, um, and correct my pronunciation if I'm wrong here, but the Quds Force, is that how you say it? Al-Quds Force. Yeah. It's the brigade. The brigade. I mean, they are, I mean, they already have replaced him in that sense. But isn't it a bit like cutting off the head of the Hydra, you know? Uh, You're going to get someone else in there. You're going to get somebody else in there. Yes, it is cutting off the head of the Hydra because there are many heads there and there are others. And that that was exactly my point, that uh, Suleimani was a very important person. He was a key, key uh, person in terms of executing the plans that uh, Iran had. But in what sense? He was responsible for all that Iran's allies across the region did, from Lebanon to Yemen. You've got Ansarullah in Yemen, the Houthis. You've got Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon. You've got the popular mobilization forces in Iraq. You've got very strong Iranian presence in Syria. He was the one who was basically managing those allies of Iran in terms of how as allies, which in the West we call them proxies, but I don't like the word proxy because it gives the impression that uh, Iran is bashing them on the head and telling them you do this or else. No, actually, there is an ideological affinity between those allies and Iran itself. He was managing that, but the planning was not done by him alone, I suspect, I think, I know, let me say, and it was done by others as well. So in a sense, I'm hoping yet again, and it's always me, uh, you know, uh, there are two gods in Greek mythology. There's Dionysus and there is Apollonia. One is about sentiments and intuition, and one is about rationality. I always go on the side of rationality. And the way I look at it is they have to sit down and they have to tweak. If it takes tweaking the JCPOA in order to move forward, let's do that, because otherwise the region is in under threat and eventually the economic sanctions are going to make Iranians so unhappy as they are at the moment and the protests might actually become unmanageable. And for those people who say, yes, let's get get rid of those mullahs, then we'll be okay. Mm. I will tell them, remember Iraq 10 years ago and don't rush where fools fear to tread. Learn from the debathification policy. Absolutely. So... 
Last one on um, Iran. The nuclear deal, obviously you talked about economic sanctions and you talked about Trump's uh, approach there. I mean, obviously he's always called it a bad deal, hasn't he? And UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson has sort of, well, urged against bringing about a total collapse in this deal. But it does look like that is what's happening. Is I mean, what, what is the deal worth a jot now? And if, and if not, what is the future of the nuclear deal? You know what? A few days ago, a couple of days ago, James, people were talking about the fact that France, Germany and the UK triggered the dispute resolution mm. of uh, article, which is Article 36 in the JCPOA, which basically means that Iran is not subscribing to uh, what it should do under the deal that was negotiated with Obama. And people are saying, oh, my God, the, the JCPOA, the non-nuclear deal is going to collapse. In my opinion, humbly, that deal collapsed, whether we like it or not, and I'm not one of his fervent supporters, but whether we like it or not, it collapsed the day Trump pulled out of it. Because let's face it, who is the big power at the moment? The United States. We in Europe, we like to sort of sit and uh, twiddle our thumbs and pretend that we are still the old colonial powers that we used to be, be that France or uh, the UK, certainly not Germany. But It was basically Trump. And when he pulled out, the whole thing sort of shook and the Europeans thought that they could do something. Iran thought that the Europeans could salvage the deal. It's becoming increasingly obvious that they won't. And to be honest with you, given uh, President Trump's limits of understanding the JCPOA deal. Why is he so much against it? Because like everything else, he wants to put his own fingerprints on it and he doesn't like something that was negotiated by By former President Obama. And therefore, if they sit together, I can tell you, I've told this to some friends in uh, political uh, space, that if they sit together, he probably would introduce a few commas here, change a few words there, even do less editing than you do to our podcast (laughs) these days, and then come out and say, you know, this is a fabulous deal because I uh, put it together. Fine. And then we move on and we spare the region further uncertainty, further pain and further uh, tensions. And then we stop having this tug of war between America and Israel. On the one hand, uh, the Arab uh, Gulf countries scared and watching. And then a few other countries trying to uh, show their uh, nationalistic fervor and their allegiances. Again, we come to Dionysus and Apollonia, James. <laughs> and we mentioned the Hydra. This is and we mentioned the Hy- Greek. Exactly. I'm enjoying exactly. this. Exactly. Right. Well, we're going to talk about a bit of that sort of foreign intervention and, and you know, literally like a big global game of chess when we talk about Libya. Of uh-huh. course. We'll do that in a sec. Um, I, I, I'm going to do a Harry because I said final, but this is final final when it, when it comes to US-Iran. Obviously, we did see some popular protests and I wondered if it would be the usual flash in the pan before ultimate suppression and we just carry on as we were. You said the nuclear deal effectively dead at the point the, the US pulled out. I'm going to roll all those things in. What What do you feel in a nutshell, it's not fair, is it, is the future relationship between Iran and the West? Uncertain. Uh, You know what? Uh, Prime Minister Boris Johnson uh, is talking, but then he's trying to keep the Americans happy so that we manage to get a good trade agreement with them once we fall out of the EU. Mm. Uh, President Macron is talking because he wants to uh, give the impression that he's the next Jupiter, the next omnipotent Napoleon in the region, and he wants to be the strong man of Europe. Everybody is talking, but at the end of the day, at the moment, these are uncertain times. And 
nothing will become clear until such time as we resolve those major issues between the Iranians and the Americans. Now, the problem is that we're, we're in a catch-22 situation, James. There is no way that the, or the Iranians are going to say, okay, we'll come and sit around the table with Trump and his advisors, Pompeo, uh, Esper, Mark Esper and others, without conditions. No way. They want the removal of the sanctions before they come and sit around the table. Yep. The Americans, on the other hand, are saying exactly the opposite. They're saying, we want to sit without any preconditions and we see what happens. Surely there is a middle road there. I mean, politicians, uh, let alone lawyers, are famous at finding middle ground. Find a middle ground, sit together and talk. Because until you do that, uh, you're not going to be able to better relations between the West and Iran. And it's a shame, not only because of the 7,000-year civilization that I talked about. I'm very fond, incidentally, of Iran. I like Iran a lot. I visited Iran, and I think it's a beautiful country with beautiful people in it. Yeah. You You've been to Iran as well. I would echo that, yeah. And uh, and I don't want to see the people suffering, and the people are suffering so much that they're literally, literally endangering life and limb by going out and uh, demonstrating because if they're caught, they're not going to be happy people. And therefore... I don't want to see this happen, but I also want to see that uh, Iran uses its oil, uses its resources to better its own people in order to be able to stand up on its own feet and be the regional power that it can be. But at the moment, we are in a very difficult situation. And unless cooler heads prevail, we're going to continue this, what I call in conflict resolution, uh, and it's a principle, it's not me uh, coining this term, a hurting stalemate. And it's going to be a hurting stalemate until the presidential elections, unless something happens to either make the situation worse, and hopefully it won't, or probably to make it better if suddenly both sides realize, you know what, we can do something about this. But at the moment, I don't want to tell you whether the glass is half empty or half full. I will just tell you there is a glass on the table and we'll see which way it goes. Hurting stalemate. I've not heard that in conflict yeah. resolution. It's a very good point. You could apply that to Syria when we spoke, spent many years talking about you know, the, of course. the stalemate in Syria. But let's move on to Libya. Now, you mentioned oil. It's quite hard to talk about Libya without talking about oil, especially Indeed. in that sort of horseshoe-shaped area in, in the north there. Um, now, you've got, you're going to have to help me with both the geography and the players involved here because you've got the warlord General Khalifa Haftar. Mm -hmm. He's pushed past Siut now, hasn't he? Or, or had, I think there is a sort of... I love very... it when an Englishman pronounces Arabic oh, names. don't. <laughs> Go on, correct me. How would you no, pronounce no, I, I look. I listen to the news on be that Channel 4, be that the B, be that ITN. And I love it when English people try to pronounce Arab names. Give me my little bit of satisfaction there as an Armenian. And I remind you, I'm Armenian. I've <laughs> never an, heard you say it ever. <laughs> as an Armenian, I love it. It's Khalifa Hefter. Very good. I tried. <laughs> you did. I tried. Actually, you weren't, you weren't that far off. <laughs> I was teasing you. And... and Okay, here, here's another um, this is, opportunity. This one is easier. Opportunity for you here. Obviously, the, the UN-recognised government is headed by Fayez al-Sarraj. Excellent, Fayez al-Sarraj. 
yep. better, obviously, yep. <laughs> um, based in Tripoli. Now, we always look at sort of, we, we sort of lament the, the, what's going on in Benghazi, don't we? As this, It was a beautiful cultural centre. I mean, I think we, we lament everything that goes on in Libya. It's very sad, isn't it? Do you remember, James, if we throw our minds, cast our minds back a few months or years, maybe? Mm. Do you remember when we used to discuss Libya whilst I was wearing different institutional hats and not yeah. like freely talking my own mind at the moment. We, I used to tell you that Libya for me is an unspoiled Cyprus. You did. You did. And it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. It's a country that I really like. At the moment, it's a country, unfortunately, that's messed up. And all that I can say in order to visualize, to help uh, listeners visualize this is just imagine you've got Libya in front of you. On the right, on the east side is Benghazi. On the west side is Tripoli, the capital. Tripoli now is the seat of uh, Faiz Sarraj, which is the UN-recognized uh, government in Libya. In the east, in Benghazi, is the warlord, uh, General Khalifa Haftar, who is basically challenging uh, the legitimate government. And there is this war between east and west, who rules uh, Libya? Who takes over Libya? Uh, Tripoli is saying that, look, we are recognized by the UN. We are the people who should govern Libya. The East is saying, no, you're all a bunch of terrorists. We should come over, clean up all those terrorists, and we will uh, promote law and order. And unfortunately, in the West at the moment, we're so far away from anything called human rights, and we've the clock has swung. A few years ago, when the Syria war started, the civil war, uh, the West used to say, oh, human rights, and you have to subscribe by this international norm and that international norm. When the refugees started coming to the European shores, the Europeans said, oh, oh, all this human rights isn't doing us much good. Let's now forget human rights and let's find strong men in those countries who would stop those immigrants coming over or running away from their countries. Refugees, some of them are fleeing because they've been uh, brutalized and they've been maltreated, but a lot of them are leaving because of economic conditions. And they're saying, no, 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 the West cannot afford to have more migrants in its shores. Italy is a good example. It's only a few hundred miles away from Libya or others like Germany, France, etc. So uh, at the moment, we've changed the narrative. It's no longer human rights. It's Who's a strong ruler? Look at Egypt now, a despot, an autocrat who's now courted by uh, Europeans and Americans. Look at all the other countries. Look at Bashar al-Assad in Syria. Suddenly, we're no longer talking about him being uh, a cruel dictator in his own country. So in a sense... What is happening is this guy in Benghazi is saying, I'm going to come and clean up Libya and then everything will be okay. Oil will pump again and we'll be a prosperous uh, country. They are fighting. Both sides have their allies. The UN recognized GNA or government has on its side Turkey, has on its side Italy and has on its side Qatar. On the other hand, you have the warlord, let's call him that so we make the distinctions, and he's supported by uh, the Arab Emirates, Egypt, to a large extent Russia, although that is shaking a bit, yeah. and to a much lesser extent France. So these are the two countries, and they met recently in uh, Moscow. 
in order to try and sign on the dotted line and have a ceasefire. The UN-recognized government signed on the dotted line. The other warlord said, no, I've got to think about it. What does think about it mean? He had to go and ask his supporters, the Emiratis and the Egyptians, is this good enough or not? Because the whole region has turned into a tug of war between different countries pushing and pulling in order to uh, promote their own interests. And at the moment, the two players who I think are the most important players in the future of Libya, short term, pro tem, are Russia and Algeria. And I'm looking both at Algeria, which has just had elections and it's got a new president, and Russia to see whether we go into further at wars of attrition or whether, again, a little bit like Iran and uh, the other uh, conflicts, as if you want, whether cooler, saner, more intelligent heads will prevail. The problem is, I tell you, the problem is Apollonia and Dionysus. Here we go back. We go back to that. And it's a fair point because you sent me um, some days ago, a, or, or I picked up on it from your tweets, a debate about whether foreign intervention is really harming Libya. You mean so, we communicate outside the studio room? <laughs> Listen, you keep giving away too many of the secrets. You're giving away <laughs> secrets of my editing, <laughs> our personal communications. No, that's fine. If you listen to that and you followed that, you would have mm. seen one of the women I really think is brilliant is yeah. Claudia Gazzini. And she's from the International Very Crisis sharp. Group. Yeah. She's sharp. And she said the same. Everybody knows it, that the warlord wants to take over. The people backing him are people who want who are anti-Islamist, anti-anything Isn't this Gaddafi Brotherhood. too? Of course he's Gaddafi too. He used to be in Gaddafi's yeah. employ. And sort of, they're fighting each other. Everybody wants a parcel of the country. Why? Mm. Because the country is rich. So what happens after power? After power corruption sets in. Yeah. Hey, Welcome We've seen to it the... before. Exactly. We've seen it before. You. Yeah, because when you mentioned, uh, that's exactly what I thought. When you mentioned strong men, you're thinking, well, what's the difference? Saddam Hussein, Gaddafi exactly. himself, you know, until that magic black and stuff. And the one in the Yemen and the one stuff. in. I mean, you remove some strong men, and then we thought, okay, we're going to have democracy, we're going to have uh, new human rights, the rule of law, etc. And then. The people there, suddenly you have the military take over and the military sort of start applying their own norms, which is, I mean, look at Egypt. Egypt is a classic, classic example. The reason I'm looking at Algeria is because I have a lot of hope that Algeria has woken up from its decades long slumber and is going to assume once again its regional role. And don't forget, uh, Algeria is very close to Tripoli and Libya. So it, what happens in Libya matters to Algerians. So uh, we say human human rights, we say rule of law, we say this, that and the other. And then we in the West try saying, oh, 500 migrants are coming our way. No, 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 no. Forget it. We don't want those boats. Let's forget human rights. So long as it's not on, in our countries, let them do whatever they want with each other. And we support those uh, strong men who basically put people in jail just because they breathe. Sorry to be so uh, almost uh, sarcastic about it, but that's what happens, and 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 I don't like it, well, as you may well have gathered. <laughs> it, it takes a brave state not to ditch its principles when it starts getting directly affected by these things. Yeah. But 
principles they are. You should oh, stick you know by. what? In an age of populism these days, uh, James, what principles? Yeah. Uh, the whole idea, Robin Cook in our country here in the UK used to talk about an ethical foreign policy. Indeed. We are light years, even further than Star Trek ever managed to go into that quadrant. Uh, we are basically light years away from anything ethical about our foreign policy. It's all about interest, interest, interest. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, let's talk Lebanon now. Okay. <sighs> when I was saying interest, 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 I actually, in my own head, I imagined what's happening, the shenanigans in Lebanon. But I thought, you know what? I'm going to keep mum because that's another five minutes of our podcast. Well, you've just taken up about 90 seconds with that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll let you off because I know Lebanon, again, is a, a country close to you. You have plenty of, oh, fr- very much plenty so. of friends in Lebanon. You know the, the terrain, as it were, both politically and geologically very well. But my goodness, they can't form a government, can they? They can't form a government. And the problem is, in a nutshell again, and my nutshells, forgive me, <laughs> listeners, but my nutshells are rather long. Uh, in a nutshell... Uh, What's happening in Lebanon is that you had the protests that started some 90 days ago. Mm. And what those protesters said, usually younger generations, is that we're sick and tired of all this massive corruption in the country. All politicians belong to confessional backgrounds. Each one is uh, appointed because he, and usually it's a he, although there are a few she's as well, are appointed by their own confession, their own uh, church, their own uh, people. I thought that was to keep them all in check. Yeah, well, that was the whole idea. But Mm. these people are basically uh, an epitomization of corruption. And the people went out to the streets and said, we've had enough. While we are struggling to put bread on our tables, a UN survey said that over 30% of Lebanese are below the, what do you call that? The The bread line. The bread line. And it might go up to 50% soon. I mean, we are suffering so much while there is an elite there that is basically wallowing in corruption and they wanted things done. So to to cut a long story short, the prime minister resigned. Uh, There were tugs of war between the different uh, political parties. And eventually they said, we're going to bring somebody, an outsider, an independent person between inverted commas. And they chose this guy, Hassan Diab. Dr. Hassan Diab is a used to be a lecturer at the American University of Beirut, and he was supposed to sit and choose a a government of technocrats, a diminished, reduced government of technocrats, to deal with the problems assailing Lebanon. The poor man is trying so hard, and the politicians are basically snookering him right and left because they want their own people sitting there. They want their own interests represented. Nobody is waiting to see, hold on, my interest, my interest. What about the interest of the country? What about the financial meltdown? What about the fact that uh, Lebanese cannot get more than $200 every week out of their accounts, assuming they have money in their accounts? What about the fact that there is so much uh, corruption and so much unemployment in the country. None of that seems to count. It's always that tranche of politicians who are trying to dictate the way this prime minister designate goes. And it worries me because 
financially, if Lebanon collapses, what with uh, uh, almost a million uh, refugees from Syria, also still a few refugees from Iraq, if we forget the original refugees from Palestine. I mean, that country has to survive. And you cannot continue this way until somebody wakes up and says enough is enough. But unfortunately, what's happening, and you might have read this again in one of my other tweets, Nero is fiddling while Rome is burning. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, I know these are fairly unfair questions and can't be answered in a matter of minutes. But, you know, the picture you paint is literally I'm seeing like a sort of whirlpool and it, impossible to get out of that that sort of grip of being pulled down and down and down and down. It is. You know, this is something generational. These things, a, a good friend of mine and somebody for whom I have enormous respect is Rami Khouri. Yes. Rami Khouri is a syndicated analyst who's also working with the American University in Beirut and spends half his time in Lebanon, half his time in the United States. And he actually wrote an article recently talking about resistance, which in Arabic is al-muqawama, versus a revolution which in Arabic is a thawra and the people on the streets are the revolutionaries and the people who are basically doing what the political elites are doing and what the Iranian regime is doing is resistance and do the two converge or do they diverge that's the question and for me this is a generational struggle it's not going to bear fruit tomorrow if you remember when we were talking in 2011, 2012, about all the uprisings which we then dubbed as the Arab Spring, Mm. all the way from Tunisia to Egypt to Syria to what have you. And we said, oh, what's going to happen tomorrow? Well, tomorrow is not tomorrow in the literal sense of 24 hours. Hence, it's a generational one. Hopefully it will happen. The Arab generations are waking up, but they're so far behind, not only in terms of... uh, challenging uh, regimes and powers, but in terms of not having proper institutions. I mean, there are some countries with good institutions. There are others which don't have institutions, not only in terms of education, because a lot of the Arabs, unfortunately, are illiterate, not in terms of the hegemony and the corruption, but all that takes time. And my hope is, whether it's in Lebanon, whether it's in Syria, whether it's in Iraq, can you imagine Iraq, I think now is going to be the battlefield between Iran and the states. That's my own perception of where this proxy war is going to take place. But whether it's Iraq, whether it's Syria, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Libya, whether it's Yemen, whether it's Palestine, each one of those has its own problems. And it is run either by rabid cruel dictators or geriatric leaders who are well past their expiry date. And this is a region that used to be so effervescent and has so much potential. And all that is being siphoned off by, well, let the listeners conclude by what, because I've spoken enough about by what already. A little bit depressing, if I'm quite honest with you. I'm it tr- is I'm struggling. We, we talk about hope versus realism. I mean, I'm, struggl- I'm struggling to see a hopeful situation at the moment. Well, hope is long term. Yeah. Realism is long to medium term. True. True. Well, I tell you what, let's just briefly touch upon Amman. I'm not just coming out with countries that I know oh, you like. Oh, yes. I, I know you like Amman. A sultanate. The Sultan uh, bin Said served for many, many moons, decades, wasn't it? Succeeded by bin Tariq, is that right? Yeah, but you're using the surname, not the first name. Yeah, go on. They're known as Sultan Qaboos, yep. who died. Yes. 
uh, at the age almost of 80 after five decades of ruling the Sultanate. Yeah. And now it's Haytham, His Majesty Haytham, the new Sultan, who was chosen by the late uh, Sultan Qaboos to take over. And it was the a smooth succession, so smooth that it makes my admiration of Oman, and you're absolutely right, we've spoken about this off mic many times over the years, I really like Oman. Uh, for various reasons, not only because of the stability, not only because it's a real country versus just an artificial glitzy country, but it's also because uh, the policy of the late Sultan was one of friends with everybody, not choosing camps and not getting involved with those spats and uh, fractious uh, confrontations. And what has happened now, hopefully, will be somebody who will continue that level of moderation and openness, but at the same time, given his own background of being somebody who was very much involved with the economic life of Oman, he will actually continue to improve Oman because when the late uh, Sultan Qaboos became the ruler, Oman, like much of the Gulf Cooperation Council, was was nothing. It was primitive. And then he, by the way, was one of the founders of the GCC. I know we've spoken about the GCC, you and I, when I've raised the issue of the unfair and, in my opinion, unlawful embargo by three countries against Qatar. But uh, what I haven't said is that one of the founders of the GCC was Sultan Qaboos. And if you look at the moment, at the uh, topography, the political topography of the Gulf country, the only elderly ruler that still is there, and he's also one of those who is doing his best to be open to everybody, is the ruler of Kuwait. So, in a sense, Oman, I think, is in safe hands. When the man died, I was a bit worried because he was unmarried, he didn't have uh, sons. So I thought, oh, this is going to be another bloodbath because everybody is going to fight against everybody else for the succession. But they were so wise. They didn't even, the Council of Sages or uh, the Majlis, which uh, comes together to elect the new or appoint the new sultan, they didn't even choose their own man. The late ruler had written in his will whom he would like to see as his successor if the other members of the family failed to elect somebody. The fact remains they didn't even try to elect somebody. They subscribed to his recommendation as a sign of uh, respect for the man and his five, year, five decades of achievement, and they chose uh, Haytham, and hopefully, hopefully he will maintain this and the different uh, rapacious political vampires will not try to pull Sultanate of Oman one way or the other. I mean, you mentioned respect for Sultan Qaboos, but is that also the case that when perhaps Oman looks around at some of those other countries neighbouring and a bit further afield, if it's not broken, don't fix it? If it ain't broken, don't fix it. Absolutely right. And don't forget that, interestingly enough, at the start of this, what's becoming a long podcast, James, at the start of this podcast, when we were talking about Iran and the US, we at some stage, we talked about the non-nuclear deal that Obama had tailored. What we didn't say then, but we might have said it in the past, is that where was that uh, deal cooked initially before it became public in Oman? 
I didn't know that actually. Yeah, it was there that it was in the Omani right. kitchen before it became public. Uh, the Omani ruler even tried to help the Israelis and the Palestinians come uh, together. He's been very quiet. He was self-effacing. He didn't attend many meetings. He was not into the pomp and ceremony that a lot of people like in that neck of the woods. But uh, he was a man who worked. Okay, if we're going to be uh, to be very critical, I'm sure we can find something about uh, him as well. But my hope is, fingers crossed, that at least in the GCC, he is an anchor of stability in a region that is not terribly stable these days, much to my regret because they have inflicted self-goals. Is that how you say it in football when you... Own goals. Own goals, thank you. They've they've basically scored their own goals, unfortunately. And Oman was one of those uh, countries that was trying to maintain the ship on an even keel. Hopefully, it will be so... Uh, with the successor. And if any of our listeners are interested and you want to have a a, uh, holiday in the Gulf, might I recommend to you to go to two countries that are very close to me, Qatar and Oman. Uh, Qatar for the way how it glitzes and shines today. And uh, don't forget 2022, the World Cup is taking place in Qatar. And Oman, which has a much older history to it. And interestingly enough, uh, because my faith is important for me, one of the biggest ecumenical centers in uh, Christian centers in uh, the Gulf region is based in Oman. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, there you go. So one of those days, if you get an inheritance, James, and you want to uh, treat your wife and your family to a holiday, Oman is a beautiful place to go. You go there, you have those dows, those ships. You can sit on one of those boats and you can go and have a nice, uh, as the sun is coming down, a nice uh, uh, trip. It's beautiful country. At least two friends of mine actually have gone in the last sort of year, eighteen months, and couldn't speak highly enough of it. It is. It's very nice. It's beautiful. And of course, uh, talking now as Brits sitting in London, uh, all that neck of the woods, all that region, certainly uh, Oman is very pro-British because, like most of the rulers, at least the older generations, they've all been trained at Sandhurst, their military training. So they've taken with them a lot of the British uh, values. This is why. I think that education is so important. It's not just getting people into your own country so you get their money. Yeah, that is so short term. It's because you instill certain values. And when these people go back to their own countries, they become ambassadors of your country as well. Right, Harry, you've got a minute or two for your final thoughts. Well, I I knew you would spring something on me. Just a little surprise. Come on, we've talked strong men, we've talked superpowers, we've talked foreign intervention, as we see all the time in this wonderful melting pot that is the Middle East, North Africa. What would you like to talk to us about? Well, what I would like uh, to do are two things. One, I hope in 2020, a new decade and a new year that we've just started, the Palestinian question will re-emerge as an important question so that the aspirations of Palestinian men, women, and children, be they Muslim or be they Christian, is given some incarnations, some relevance, some reward. Because those are people who've been suffering for far too long and they have basically been treated with uh, ugly disrespect 
by Israel on the one hand occupying power, but also by uh, other countries, either in the region, Arab countries or the world itself, certainly America these days under Trump. So I hope that the Palestinians will have their day. I'm not going to say because I'm not so naive as to say that I hope they have a state in 2020. They won't. But I hope that they will have elections, be that legislative elections or presidential elections, and that gradually uh, the Palestinian question would come out again, would rise sphinx light from the, uh, the dust and become important again. And I said, I hope that will happen because my second little wish is we talk a lot about realism. You said it. We talk a lot about pragmatism. We talked about Apollonia and Dionysus. What I would like is to also add a prayer for hope because if we don't have hope, we're not alive. Yeah. It's as simple as that. Without hope, you might as well stay in bed and not get up in the morning. And if you're not getting up in the morning, then I don't see what relevance you have to this little village, global village of ours. That we so, call the world. That we call the world. Thank you, James. You brought it back to basic reality. So my hopes are Palestine, wake up and let the world help you wake up and let there be more hope in our hearts because without it, we are nothing really. Can't add to that. Very well concluded. Um, I'd just like to say thanks ever so much for being here. It's pleasure. You know, I wish it happened more often, but it's good when it does happen. It is long, but it's, I hope, enough food for thought for everybody listening. And uh, yeah, Happy New Year as happy as happy. I just called you happy. <laughs> <laughs> Same number of letters as Harry said at, at the head of the program. And um, yeah, do come back when you get a chance. We will hopefully sneak another of these Middle East analyses in very soon indeed. And let me just finish off, James, because you're going to love this, with an Armenian Christian wish. Christmas just came a few days ago because Armenians followed the exactly the Orthodox original calendar. So for all those Armenians who I know listen to my podcast, this is not conjecture, this is fact. Mm. I would say Christos Dzanaviev Haidnetsav. Which means Christ was born and revealed. Glad tidings to you all. Glad tidings to all of you listening. Thanks, Harry. <laughs>